Nationwide Building Society is what most of us laypeople would call a large and venerable bank in the United Kingdom. They're also pretty sophisticated users of Kafka and event streaming in general. Today I talked to Rob Jackson, a principal architect there, about choreography versus orchestration, replacement of traditional messaging systems, GDPR, data governance, and more. It's all on today's episode of Streaming Audio, a podcast about Kafka, Confluent, and the cloud. Hello and welcome to another episode of Streaming Audio. I am, uh, as I so often am, your host, Tim Berglund, and I am joined in the virtual studio today by Rob Jackson. Rob is a principal architect at the Nationwide Building Society. And Rob, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Tim. Uh, nice to be here. Uh, we've got a lot of cool stuff to talk about today about uh, Nationwide's use of Kafka and, and you know, really your adoption journey. But uh, first of all, tell for listeners outside the UK, I know if you're in the UK, you know what Nationwide is. If you're in the United States, you think it's an insurance company because there's an insurance company in the US called that. So what is a building society? That sounds like people who have cranes and hammers and saws and like steel things to me. Uh, what's a building society and, and what is Nationwide? Okay, so um, a building society is a organization owned by its members instead of being owned by shareholders. So we have about 16 million members and um, and those are the people we answer to. Um, we offer full banking and financial services in the UK and we've been around a long time, um, about 100 and, nearly 180 years, I believe. Um, yeah. That's, that's Nationwide Building Society. We have a similar logo to the uh, US uh, Nationwide, so we're, we're often uh, confused with each other in the States. That's okay. There's a uh, very popular wiki product uh, made by a company that, that made by Atlassian uh, that has a very similar name to Confluent, uh, and sometimes people get confused about that. Oh, yeah, you work for them. I use Confluence and Jira. I'm like, ah, no, that's not what I said. I may have made that mistake myself a couple of times. It, it does happen. Um, anyway, okay, so building society, um, and anybody who actually knows the legalities of this thing is probably going to chuckle uh, knowingly, but that sounds like what we call in the United States a credit union, although credit unions tend to be small and regional, and you don't get the you know venerable two-century sort of ages, but uh, they're like banks, but member-owned, and there are some other regulatory differences a guy like me wouldn't know. Okay, it sounds similar. Yeah. Um, to a first order approximation, a bank. Yeah. Um, so um, you guys use Kafka and I kind of want to just really go through your adoption journey. We, you know, you and I've talked about this stuff a little bit and, and there's a lot of cool things that uh, have happened along the way. And I know the the architectural concerns that you're thinking about are, in my opinion, precisely the things you should be thinking about. Uh, and that always makes me exciting. But Talk about how Kafka got started. Like, what what was the first use case and pain that you thought Kafka would solve, and and approximately when was that? Okay, well, first of all, it's uh, good to hear that you uh, think we are thinking about the right things. That's always that's always a nice vote of confidence. Um, so we've been using Kafka for about, I think we've been in production around about two years now. And we had two use, separate use cases that started around the same time, but by quite different routes. So the the first use case we started with was around um, starting to replace our 
mortgage sales systems or mortgage origination systems. So we have a system which is, or we had a system in use at the time. It'd been around a few years. It was a traditional um, orchestration style system. Uh, selling a mortgage is a very long running process, a very complex process. Lots of handoffs to different people. Uh, both back office and different teams. And we wanted to start um, incrementally replacing it. And when we looked at patterns for replacing it and giving us agility to change processes, ability to um, have separate teams working independently, um, we started to consider event-driven designs and um, choreography-based solutions. And um, and that was one adoption of Kafka. And very interesting Kafka for its durability, its persistence, um, scalability, but also there was a real buzz around Kafka, and I'd say that the engineers wanted to to use it. Um, so there's a lot of demand from kind of bottom up, I suppose, or or from the engineering folks to um, to to use Kafka. Um, so that was kind of one one use case. The other use case we looked at at the time was around. Um, we, so in the UK, we have a regulation called open banking which is about increasing competition in the banking sector and exposing data through APIs that aggregators could use to kind of aggregate information from multiple banks and, and put it together. Uh, this meant that uh, those, those aggregators could start hitting our systems through these external APIs and start generating a lot of volumes against our back-end systems and, and probably scaling that volume up much more quickly than we were used to. So we started. This a, was this a regulation that has recently landed on you? The open banking stuff. That, that's correct. Yeah. Okay. And um, and when we started thinking about how should we respond to that regulation, well, we have to expose these APIs. We have we have um, regulation in terms of um, the availability of those APIs, and we looked at different ways to meet that regulation. And it would involve things like scaling some of our mainframe systems, scaling mainframes. Mainframes can clearly scale to huge volumes, but it tends to be quite a, you know, it's a pre-planned process. It tends to be quite costly. And we were looking for more cost-effective ways. I was going to say, you, uh, you are paying by the drink there. So uh, scaling, scaling up your mainframe process, like you said, it works, but you're going to pay for it. Yeah, and it, it's, a, it's a scale-up kind of architecture, really, rather than a scale-out. Mm-hmm. And uh and it's not really a cloud architecture, you know, that that's coming. It's, it's maybe an option, but it's not perhaps um, the most obvious cloud use case. No, it, it, that is uh, uh, an excellent understatement with which to, to begin our conversation. It's not obvious <laughs> how you can run mainframes in the cloud. Yeah, that's right. So um, what we looked at was ways to, um, I, I think of this as liberating our data, and I probably have some of my colleagues telling me off for using that word, but um, liberating the data from our mainframes through technologies like change data capture that push that data into um, somewhere else where we can create caches and expose and push that data all the way out to the cloud where we can build APIs in the cloud where we offload that um, that workload into the cloud. It's not even in our data centers. So when we were looking at the architecture for that, um, there's a lot of interest in NoSQL databases and things like Redis caches. You don't always know how to structure those APIs at the beginning of a project, but you do know that you need high, high resilience, high availability, high throughput, all those sort of things. And I, um, I think I was probably in, influenced quite heavily by um, turning the database inside out from Martin Kleppman, but looking at change data capture into Kafka, 
doing stream processing and then creating materialized views off the um, back of those Kafka topics seem to meet all the requirements around performance, uh, resilience, availability, all those kind of um, things that we had to do. But it also enabled us to get digital agility, move that data to the cloud, start producing domain-specific caches and introduced events and notifications into the society. So it was, a, it was an architecture that captured a lot of imagination um, and generated a lot of interest internally. There's a few things there to drill into. Um, I want to back up. <laughs> I would I would just like to talk about mainframe applications in the cloud for a little while because that's just okay. fun. <laughs> Probably in not a, the in right a, person to speak to there. In a, in a through the looking glass kind of way, you know, it's, it's a conversation you want to ha- you want to have with Cheshire Cat or something. But um, uh, you mentioned a migration from orchestration to choreography. Mm-hmm. And we have recently discussed those on the podcast, but for anybody who's just coming in on this episode, uh, if you could give us a quick definition of how you see the difference between those, and okay. uh, then I want to drill into what was going on in your system. Okay. So with our existing architecture, maybe, I mean, choreography and orchestration have been around a long time, but I think choreography has increased in popularity since uh, Kafka became more popular. But orchestration is where you tend to have a a process controller, something in control of an end-to-end process saying, start the pro- a, a customer starts a process, let's say, and the orchestrator would say, call one system, get a response back from that system, and depending on what data has come back, it would then call another system. You would have to deal with whether that system is available or not. It might have to put that process to sleep if it's a long-running process and you're waking, waiting for a person to do something, but it's basically in control of that process. Um, that's orchestration. Uh, choreography. The, the nice is, thing about that being that you do have the code in one place, as it were. You can look at the the orchestration code. And hopefully, and this has been, like you said, it's not a new idea. And occasionally that quote unquote code is XML and things like that historically. I mean, there's all kinds of sort of perfidy that I think the, the that vendors have imposed on us and there. It's interesting you, you say that... Um, the advantage of that is that the code is all in one place. You could then probably flip that around and say the disadvantage of that is that all the code is in one place. <laughs> exactly, which gets us to choreography. Yeah. So choreography would be, um, if you imagine an event being used to trigger um, the execution of some code, so you'd, you'd write something like a microservice that would be a Kafka topic consumer in the um, in a, a particular event has been raised, you run some workload, which might be writing to a database. It might be calling another system. It it, it could be um, waiting for a user to, to then do something. And when you've done that work, you raise an event. But the interesting thing is you don't know, as the raiser of, the, of that event, who is going to consume that event. So you haven't got a single thing in control. You've got microservices raising events and consuming events. And they have to... Uh, they have to- and this, you know, microservices don't have psychology. The people who write them do. And the psychologically difficult thing here is that uh, you have to be willing to do your work and announce it to the world, uh, produce, produce the event to the topic, and allow other services to pick that up and go forward. So there isn't one place where you see all this happening. There isn't one because the, I mean, the the metaphor. Don't 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 lose the metaphor, dear listener. Uh, between orchestration and choreography. In orchestration, there is uh, a conductor who is really calling the shots and keeping the time. 
and of course all the musicians, you know, they've got music in front of them and skill and, and they've got timing too, but it falls apart without that, that conductor unifying the orchestra in choreography. And if you haven't ever taken any ballroom or Latin dance, um, I can only recommend it so often. I don't know how to convince you. You really should everybody, if you're physically able to, it's just a really good thing to do. Um, and you find that there's, uh, you know, an interplay and there's, there can still be leadership in a dance. Um, but one person makes a decision and the other person is then free to respond to that decision. And that's the same, that's the same way with choreo- with uh, choreographed microservices, a service gets an input, does this computation, uh, produces its result to a, a topic. And then some other services decide to do things with that. And you kind of have to let your services be adults. Um, you wouldn't manage people like that. You wouldn't, you wouldn't relate to your spouse like that. Like, Oh, you know, are you going to do that thing that I asked you to do? Is it done yet? Is it done yet? You know, it'd be terrible. So that's, that's the kind of the, the hump you have to get over in, in going from really, I'll say the older orchestration mindset to the newer, uh, choreography mindset that you're describing. And then you can start to think about what advantages do I get from going to choreography? So why would I do that? Because I think it does bring it with it some complexity. If you're talking about a process which is complex, you not, might need to measure service level agreements on it and so on. Then you, you do have some complexity and, and probably less mature tooling in terms of monitoring the execution of that process as well. Yeah, you don't say. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, you, you, you talked about microservices consuming that topic and and just thinking about that for a second you 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 said microservices plural and it might start off as one consumer of that event might be interested in it and that's all that you need to get your process up and running but then somebody else is interested in that event or you want to add a new step into that process that runs in parallel with other steps these are the sort of things that you can add without changing you know it, i guess you're reducing your blast radius of change a new consumer doesn't need to change any of the other microservices. It's just a new consumer of a, of a topic and, a, and an event. Yeah. Yeah. You, let's see, we're talking about choreography and orchestration. I, there was, I, I, uh, one of the thing I wanted to say, yeah, yeah. That for, for really complex things, um, uh, sometimes there are tremendously complex things like, like, you know, uh, uh, Baroque chamber music or something like that, that, that are accomplished through orchestration. It's not like it doesn't work. But most of the most complex and most useful things that we see in our lives, like, say, a, a broadly market economy, uh, looks more like choreography, right? There are a bunch of independent actors making decisions and exchanging information, exchanging value, and stuff happens that you can't – generally good things happen, most of us think, uh, that you can't predict, that nobody's designing – uh, but you get interesting emergent phenomenon. And of course, in an enterprise architecture, yes, someone is designing it. There's a, there's a Rob Jackson somewhere who's saying, hey, we need this business outcome to happen and you know these services need to get written. But then there's another architect who says, well, this data is here uh, and other services can sort of grow up in the soil of this thing. So it's, it's like an economy. It's like an ecosystem, a bunch of things, uh, making simple decisions and simple interactions and, and complex behavior emerging from that. I'm sure we'll get onto it later, Tim, but um, as soon as you start building your applications in this way, you start to find as a byproduct that you're getting interesting events going into Kafka that you haven't really foreseen what you'll use those events for later. So you suddenly, you might find that the 
analytics community are suddenly interested in those events. They never saw them before. They're now events that they can consume. So I think you get you know, a lot of byproducts. Perhaps that's when you put choreography and Kafka together, perhaps. Yeah, yeah. So, um, and I, the, the way I normally see this is there are, broadly speaking, two motivations for people to adopt Kafka as a central part of their information architecture. One is to choreograph microservices, to, to integrate microservices, I'll say. You know, you, you, uh, you, you can't have them share a database. Uh, that's design time coupling. Um, maybe you tried having them call each other synchronously. There's a little bit too much runtime coupling there. Uh, and so people are increasingly landing on uh, event-driven reactive microservices as a good and stable and extensible architecture kind of for the next generation. So the one motivation for Kafka is basically I've got microservices and help. The other one is um, things are happening to me and I need to interpret those things and make decisions about those things very quickly. And so the ETL, the 30-year-old ETL paradigm can't help you, absolutely doesn't do that thing. And so you've got you know the real-time analytics motivation. Mm -hmm. These both meet in the back though. You start doing one and you figure out that, oh, I can do the other. And so like you say, you start with microservices, but wait, I have all these events. I can do analytics on these. So tell us what, as your adoption journey continued, uh, did interesting, interesting things happen there at Nationwide? Um, well, I, I guess you, you then put together the other use case I started talking about, which was the mainframe offload. And, and there what we saw was you've got database changes going on. And from that, you start... We were stream, using stream processing to take those database-level changes and turn them into um, events which we could then load into a into a database where we could query them. So we could have a, a, a very much an up-to-date queryable cache of mainframe data. But we, we started with one mainframe. We've added a second mainframe now. But there are a whole range of data sources that you start to bring into that world. You, you've got more and more events being derived from those database changes. And databases are not necessarily the best place always to get your events from. It would be very nice if your applications were built in the way we've just been talking about with choreography, where you you just get events as part of the application build. But a lot of our exist, you know, legacy applications predated Kafka, predate Kafka by, in some cases, 40 years. Um, so getting events out the back of those using change data capture has been really useful for us. First of all, to create that database of queryable data for the open banking regulation we talked about. But out of the back of that, you start to get more and more events coming. So the fact that a customer record has changed in a database, well, that, that's actually a really interesting event that the customer has changed something about them. What do I do with that? Um, who's interested in that? What different parts of the organization are interested in that? Before, they probably just, you know, they would have got to know through maybe some ETL processes or if it's really important through... Um, maybe through an orchestration, you know, kind of SOA type architecture where they were told through an API. But um, yeah, you, 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 what you start to see is you start building your applications using event-driven designs. You start to bring change data capture into your state and you you, you, you can quickly start to build up a good catalog of events. Now, we're, we're still pretty early on in terms of what else do we use those events for outside of those 
what they're actually being built for. So yes, we've got the queryable cash. Yes, we've got the event-driven design for mortgages, but the analytics use cases, the pulling all that data together to do, say, fraud analytics, those things are only just starting to happen now. But yeah, it's, it's early days for those kind of that, what, what I think of as a snowball effect. Once you get more and more events in there, you get to do more and more interesting things. That's, that's I'm kind of really excited and waiting for that to happen. But the, and the sooner the better, I guess. Oh, yes. it's. Uh, but as you say, it's there. So um, the, the the demand for access to that data and, and you know, teams of yours doing interesting value-added comp- computation around that data and exposing it, that demand's going to show up. Definitely. Um, so, I mean, and I think the sooner we get that data from, we, we tend to have these on-prem Kafka clusters at the moment, and perhaps we're rebuilding silos of information. But where I see this going is we start to either generate those events directly in the cloud um, or we replicate from on-prem into the cloud. And I think that's where we start to see um, easy, or ho- hopefully what I'm hoping for is we start to break down those silos and start to have easier data sharing across the organization. And I think cloud is an enabler for that. And of course you can, you can rebuild data silos in the cloud if you try, you know, if you try, but that's, you know, that's not what we're trying to do. Of course not. And, and that really is, I, I appreciate that aspiration because I share it because I, I know architecturally how event streaming can break down data silos, right? Uh, it is, it is in fact possible to do. And I, I have this really clear picture in my head, how relational databases as the center of an application, you know, that the architectural decision to build applications, not around a log, but around a mutable update in place data store. Not that there's a thing wrong with relational databases, but their triumph beginning in the early 90s and or late 80s, early 90s, and, and the application architectures that emerged around them, giving rise to what we used to call the departmental database. Um, you know, those were silos. And that the kind of the shape of that technology was to have this database of a certain scale that wasn't too small and wasn't too big. And then an application that grew around that. And that that was that was just what naturally you wanted to do. You know, you, uh, you know, you, you pick the tool and the tool ship shapes the kind of work that you do. And I see with event streaming, um, the, the, the bent of the tool, the, the architectural opinions of that piece of infrastructure are more towards integrating and less towards siloing. But yeah, like you said, if you can, you want to break them down. Like you know, there are other syst- there are other drivers in the system, like people, like organizational structure, like turf, uh, and who loves who, and and all of these kinds of things that are other reasons we have silos. It's not you can't just blame databases. You know, we kind of love our silos, and so whether I'm super interested because I've got the vision, and there are like a few people doing it, but whether widespread adoption of event streaming. I can look back after it. I can look back in 10 years and say, oh yeah, the silo thing, those got broken down mostly. That was good. Um, or eh, that part of the vision wasn't realized. You know, we, we have to see. Um, yeah. Sorry. And it's, there are things, you know, being a bank, we care deeply about security, data protection, all those sort of things. And and, and you have to balance. So data silos and uh, are often done for, um, I don't know, less good reasons. Like I created this database, therefore it's mine, and I'm not going to let anyone else have any access to it. Exactly. Um, but there are also valid reasons for kind of, I guess, controlling and you know limiting access to your data. But what I want is the 
technology to not get in the way. So if we decide if we decide something is a interesting event and can be consumed by lots of different parts of the organization, then let's make it really easy for them to do it with the right controls in place. Right, right. Uh, regulatory silos are fine. You know, that's a government, your government telling you what to do. And as I say, they have guns. And so, you know, yeah, <laughs> we do that. Um, but uh, kind of the social silos, we'd, we'd like to, we'd like to not encourage those. How about, I'd just like to go down that path for a little bit. Compliance and security. I mean, you're you're one of the most heavily regulated industries there is, and those laws you know, differ from country to country. In the U.S., they differ from state to state, but they're 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 more alike than not. Um, so, what do you deal with there? I'd love it if you could talk about GDPR. Um, I mean, there's tension between again, if you look at sort of the the opinions and the worldview of Kafka as infrastructure, it's I'm going to remember everything forever and never change it. And then there's this law that says, oh, no, you, you have to be able to forget things. So um, how does that play together? Uh, so because we, we talk about immutable logs, um, remembering everything forever. And, and as you just said, you know, GD, um, General Data Protection Regulation, um, or what used to be called Data Protection Act in the UK, um, a customer, if if they stop being a customer of ours, we have to remove their data after a certain amount of time, or they have the right to forget as well and the right to correct. So this is where we use things like topic compaction. Um, I mean, the easiest thing is you don't store the data long term in Kafka, you know. And if you don't need to store the data, that's the easiest way to to not worry about it at that layer. Clearly, there are other places where you do have to worry about it, like in your databases. Um, but in our case, we wanted to store that data long-term. We wanted to be able to say that Kafka is going to be a long-term event store. It may also be that long-term store for change data capture where we are putting database changes into Kafka and then materializing it in different places, different technologies. So we wanted to store it long-term. So then you immediately run into, well, if um, we delete a record from our database, then um, it needs to be gone from Kafka as well. And you've, of course, you get the delete event into Kafka, uh, but that doesn't mean that all the subsequent records are gone if you've got long-term retention turned on. So this is where you look at things like topic compaction, making sure that your consumers of that topic are processing those topics in in a reasonable time and removing it from any caches. Although you, you know you might consider those caches in memory in memory and have it, and rebuilding them from time to time anyway. But topic compaction is where is, is the primary way in which we, um, how we meet GDPR regulation. And then you have things like encryption as well. So you've got things like payment card industry regulation. So credit card numbers are a good example of data that has to be encrypted at rest and in transit. And this is where you're looking at things like um, encryption that you need to add on. So in our case, we're actually encrypting data before it even goes into Kafka. We're also doing encryption of the, of the um, storage. And in, when we go to cloud, we have to do things like bring our own key. We can't rely on cloud provided keys and so on. So there are ways to meet it. Um, it's not always easy, but you, you can meet the regulation with Kafka and, and you know, this, this kind of architecture. Um, so you, you just, you have to think about it up front. Right. Right. And that uh, bring your own key and encrypted data at rest. These are, um, recent additions. And when I say recent, uh, the re date we're recording is happens to be Friday, November 13th, 2020. Nobody's oh, talking about so. how 
how scary it is that there's a Friday the 13th in 2020. I'm fine with it, but mid-November <laughs> 2020, it's a recent uh, feature rollout to Confluent Cloud. If I may just shill for a moment, the the ability to bring your own key, because all the uh, data at rest has always been encrypted in cloud, but for folks like you who, for regulatory reasons, can't let some dang cloud vendor pick your key, because who are we? Uh, you can pick your key. Uh, and that works fine. So this message brought to you by Confluent Cloud. Uh, thank you. <laughs> thank you for listening. Um, do you ever do the thing? Um, I'm always curious uh, to, to talk to people who do this, where you've got customer data in topics and it's retained long term and you need to be able to forget it, where you encrypt it with a customer specific key, manage that key elsewhere and destroy the key when you need to forget the customer. Is that, is, have you found that to be practical? Uh, it's, it's not something we do. So this is the way that some day, you know, some technologies work that that way. It's not an approach we've chosen to follow. So we would we would tend to use topic compaction for that kind of thing. So we always gotcha. hold the latest rather than holding a history and throwing away the key. And the amount of time it takes to trigger a compaction and all that kind of stuff. Regulators are satisfied with this because I mean, there's a there's a point at which there's a regulator who has to think about the way the infrastructure works and make sure that is likely enough to satisfy the law. But topic compaction uh, works for you guys, I guess is the, the thing. Yes. But, and of course, topic compaction is one aspect to it, but applications are not, it, it, the Kafka topics themselves are not being queried by our applications to expose data directly. If, uh, I'm going to explain that a little bit, what I mean by that. So you, you get a data change come through into a system of record, like a, a backend system holding customer data. That data change goes into Kafka and we're processing that within a couple of seconds or less so that if we, in that materialized view, you've got the up-to-date data straight away. So topic compaction is about just making sure that we are, you know, that the data is cleaned up, you know, as and when, you know, overnight, you know, within a couple of hours in the Kafka topic. So it's just keeping the size down and making sure that data is gone when it's needed to be gone from the Kafka topic, you know, it's deleted versus th that query aspect to it. Does that make sense? Uh, no, bring me, bring me through that again. Okay. So um, you, you were kind of saying, so if it, that there's what I, what I meant was uh, with with topic compaction, you can only see the most recent value. The other one is kind of back there on disk at some point. And until that log segment is actually compacted, it'll it'll be there on disk. You can't see it, but it's there. But topic and compaction is one of those things which happens in the background and you can't always say exactly when it's going to happen. So there right. could be some time before topic compaction takes place. And I guess my question is, nobody's worried about that, right? From well, that's standpoint. what I was trying to kind of get to the bottom of really which is say that you've let's say you've deleted the record in your source in your master data source that delete right. event goes into kafka straight away that's go, going in within you know within a second and then where we're building materialized views of that kafka topic our, our systems are designed to make sure it's also processed that delete event within kind of a couple of seconds. So any materialized views of the back of that topic are reflecting that change almost instantaneously, regardless, regardless of the compaction going on in the background. Got it, got it. And that the, the regardless, the, the, the fact that there's compaction and there's that value in a log segment somewhere on a disk, it's invisible to the application. It's like technically, properly, yeah. formally not possible to read. 
That's right. And then it's gone from the Kafka topic as soon as compaction takes place as well. Good enough. Good enough. Um, As you've gone through your adoption journey, uh, what has the discussion been about Kafka versus traditional messaging systems? Have you had to make the argument of why it's different? Has there been, uh, have they been complementary? Do you see Kafka displacing messaging systems? Uh, And, and you know what, if, if I could ask you, begin with your account of how Kafka and traditional messaging systems are different. Let's think. So traditional mesh, I, I sometimes explain Kafka to, to colleagues as, you know how a traditional messaging system works. So you want to, you put a message onto a, a queue and that could be um, any number of different queue technologies and someone else will read that message off a queue and then typically it's removed from that queue. Um, right. Also, it it may well be persisted to disk that message for resilience purposes, um, you know, in case of kind of infrastructure outage. But that's not the primary design choice of that queue. That's a kind of how do I make it resilient? So we, we kind of know that's how queues work. And then the way of looking at Kafka is you could say, well, it, it's like that, but it's designed to store data. So you can think of Kafka as a distributed data store with a messaging API on top of it that allows you to interact with that data through the ways we're used to interacting with uh, a message queue. So that's one way that sometimes works with people. Uh, Of course, there are times when queues are still appropriate. So queues are still useful for some use cases and might even be simpler to using than Kafka. And and, and we get into debates debates sometimes about whether I'm, I want to just get a message from A to B within my, you know, my line of business. I'm, I'm, I'm sending commands. These are not events. No one else is interested in it. And I, and I'm familiar with this technology. Can I, can I still use it? And, and yeah, there are still valid reasons to use queues. Um, so I don't think queues are necessarily going away, but we're seeing fewer perhaps and fewer use cases for for traditional queues and more and more use cases for Kafka. And I think it's because people realize they they actually want Kafka for lots of reasons. And if we're using Kafka anyway, and it can do the messaging use cases, the queue use cases, well, let's just standardize on that as a piece of technology. Right, which you almost always can. There's occasionally somebody will say, no, I need a message to be destroyed as soon as I read it. And, like, and they'll, they'll convince themselves that that's a hard requirement and maybe be right. Um, and so you, you do have this place for queues, but I see the same thing, uh, where the, the Kafka is a superset, not, not a strict superset. Like I said, there's some little bits of queue functionality that are just outside of Kafka, but broadly it's a superset. It does some other nice things and, 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 uh, feels competitive just in the architectural sense. Like it's a, it's a substitute. Mm-hmm. Um, how about the, sorry, oh, go ahead. I was just to say that the big difference I think is. For, for people is the when you realize that Kafka is designed to store data, large amounts of data on long term, and then you start to realize, well, that's interesting because then I can add multiple consumers, add consumers later. That it just it, it 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 doesn't sound like a big change from a queue. And I know there are other differences between Kafka and queues, but to me that's one of the main ones. Um and it's the use cases that brings in that I think is really interesting with Kafka. Yeah. And I, I say I think fairly frequently on this podcast, uh it feels like I say it frequently. Maybe maybe I say it to myself, but the the <laughs> people who call Kafka topics Kafka cues, I I I correct them. 
you know, politely, but firmly. Um, I get it. There's sort of queuing semantics kind of over in the corner winking at you, but uh, queues aren't persistent. Logs are. And that's, that's always how I give that definition too. I haven't made that mistake today, have I, Tim? No, sir, you have not. No, I, I absolutely would have covered that. I, I okay. would have made a, a note in the in the notes for the editor to, to edit that out, but I haven't, <laughs> I haven't made any of those yet. So, I'm sure I'll do it later. No, uh, right. How about so you're you're touching you've touched on this a few times and you just kind of were, but the difference between Kafka and databases, I I personally see that as a as a more interesting question, and and one that implies more coexistence into the future. But what do you see, and you know, how do you answer the is Kafka a database question? I don't know. If, am I allowed to do this? I, I I think I could say there's a really good presentation I saw the other day on something like is Kafka more acid than your database? Um, who was the presenter again, Tim? He was this American guy. Uh, for, he's got a beard, kind of a little, little gray in it. Um, Tim, it was me. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's a good presentation on the uh, on comparing Kafka and databases. Um, and I think the for us anyway, just the, the confusion arises as you start to explain the differences between Kafka and queues, and you say, well, Kafka's this distributed uh, data system that you can create, you know, that you can interact with through a a messaging API. And then you start to talk about, well, you've got things like interactive queries and and you've got RocksDB, you know, embedded in there. So you can do key value lookup and streams. APIs require state and you can use key value lookups there. Then you start to get the database people interested. And I guess the database people are interested anyway, because as soon as you start talking about storing data long-term, then you get the, well, is it a database then? And and I, and I, you know, you, you can answer this better than I can, Tim, but you, you can, do, you know, it's certainly you've got the acid semantics and it's, you know, long-term durable persistence is there, but what you don't get is the rich query, uh, query capabilities you get with the database. So yes, you can do some simple stuff with interactive queries, but there's a whole bunch of use cases you still need databases for. Yeah. You, with interactive queries, you kind of get, um, you get little, ha- you can build little hash tables. You can build key, key value stores out of things, which is super useful, but that's not, when we say database, that's not what we mean. I mean, 10 years ago, we went through this exercise of trying to reprogram the our, ourselves to have a broader definition of what database meant. In 2005, if you said database, it just meant relational database. And there wasn't anything And like the old timers would say, oh yeah, I used an object database once and it didn't go anywhere. And a few guys in the corner like, well, XML, you know, but database meant relational database. Then NoSQL happened and we all realized, okay, it might not be relational, but most of those still gave us rich query capabilities and we just expect that. So my answer is that that Kafka is not a database. Um, it's more of a database construction toolkit. And there are layers that are emerging on top of Kafka, like KSQL DB, uh, that aspire to much more database-like functionality, but they're different things. Um, and and you're not you're just not going to find relational databases going away. Like in your one of your primary use cases you described, the main f- mainframe offload, you have mainframe, you change data capture into topics, and maybe you've got applications that grow up around those topics and process them directly, but probably then you just Kafka connect them into a relational database and you do queries on that. Now, um, if you need to do interesting and rich queries on that data, that's going to be a relational database forever. 
where I see the interesting boundary is when you've got what I'll call the degenerate use of a relational table, where it is just a lookup on a on a single primary key. It's a key value store, and and that happens. That that's a it's not like bad. It's not degenerate in the bad sense. It's degenerate in the computer science sense, not not in the ethical sense, where there's there's a lot more stuff you could be doing, but you're not. Um, though in those cases, I see things like K tables and interactive queries and KSQL DB, current state of KSQL DB tables and pull queries on those. All that is competitive with relational tables. That, that's, that's the margin where there's competition. But I see Kafka as being a toolkit for constructing big, giant distributed databases, aka enterprise applications built out of microservices. Each of which has you know one or more relational databases in it, uh, doing all the glorious things relational databases do. You, you did touch on something there, which is probably obvious to you and any listeners, but it might be worth just saying that in that use case where you're taking change data capture into topics and you're putting it into a yeah, I think you said databases, and I think that's a really important thing that you may materialize that into a relational database for some workloads. You might put it into a document store for some web applications. But you might put it into a graph database if you want to do some kind of graph workloads on it. You might also put that into Hadoop, you know, into an HDFS file system if you want to do analytics on it. And um, because I think the NoSQL movement really is that not everything is a relational database and getting it into Kafka where you can then take it into other places for different workloads, I think is a is, is for us anyway, is an important an important part of the architecture, you know, an important benefit. Absolutely. And that's that's kind of the lightweight definition of CQRS there is that I have this stuff and I have different ways I want to be able to read it. And so go ahead and write it into those different systems. And in that that talk, I'll see if I can find a video version of that talk to link to since you mentioned it. And, you know, hey, I guess I'll never pass up an opportunity for self-promotion, will I? Uh, <laughs> I've, but, I've got a link if you need it. <laughs> okay. If you could send me a link, that'd be great. Um, <laughs> but uh, I talk about, um, and this is this is originally Martin Kleppman's solution, but um, ways to do that multiple writes into multiple sinks, you know, because you've got different ways you want to read the data, like the, the list you just enumerated. Uh, there are ways to do that atomically um, with Kafka that that relieve the application of a lot of responsibility that would otherwise be its own. Final question. Um, we talked about GDPR, which is a, a regular, uh, you know, regulatory. Uh, constraint that does some interesting things to you. How about just broadly data governance and data lineage? Uh, these are things that um, are strict requirements for organizations like yours and often involve you having to do a certain amount of legwork to get that done. So what's your story been there? I would say that the data, my data governance colleagues and data architects are used to, yes, we do have regulatory requirements around understanding our data clearly you know it's it's a good thing to understand what data you have and the lineage of it that's typically been for our relational databases so when we started introducing kafka the first question from my data architecture colleagues is well how do we understand what what events we have in the society and and can we start putting metadata alongside them so that they're really interested in understanding what what events um do they contain PCI data? Do they contain customer data? Who's the business owner of that data? And understanding that 
and I guess it's data they didn't have before, but it, uh, sorry, I'm using the data word too often here, but this, these are events they didn't have before they happened in, in, you know, in our systems, but they didn't get to see them. We didn't get to record them. So now we record them. They are really interested in them. Alongside that, people building applications are really interested in what events are out there. What can I start consuming and, um, and how can I start using them? So tools to understand events, being able to query across clusters, whether that's on-prem or in the cloud, um, those are really interesting to us. But it's, it's, it's early days for us on these. It's, it's a topic that's topic it's, it's too many words i know um, right data topic. <laughs> it's, a, it's, it's, it's a great interest to us we're not there yet it's kind of today the tools are, are not what we want and and uh, we are kind of using things like maybe spreadsheets and uh, and existing data governance tools uh, as we can but it's an area we watch with great interest awesome so it sounds like headers just from a technological standpoint is it a lot of metadata in headers is that that the answer there um Yes, it could be. So you, you clearly you've got your schema registry and you've got your schemas, but being able to add tags um, that that might be something. But having control over um, you know the tags instead of it just being a kind of a put whatever data you like in in the headers or tags, it, you know, and tag them however you want to. It might be that we want to put some control over that in terms of there's a a pre canned list of of areas that you know of things that you can tag these you know events with. What's next at Kafka? Uh, what's next for Kafka at Nationwide? And for you, what uh, what are you looking to? Well, we've we've, as I said, we've got a couple of use cases live. We've got a number of in-flight projects that are following similar patterns that, to, that we've already talked about. So we're building more event-based systems or choreography patterns, and we still, you know, we're still working through the details of when to use orchestration, when to use choreography. Uh, sometimes you might find a bit of both in a system, but it's it's, it's working our way through those details. Um, the mainframe offload, it, it's not really just a mainframe offload. It's We've got a whole bunch of data silos. We've got a whole bunch of legacy systems, and we want to modernize them. We want to take them to the cloud. How do we enable that? So more and more data sources into that into that architecture where we use things like CDC or, or even getting applications to emit events natively so that, that you can see more of more of the same that we've already been talking about so at the very least we're doing those things there's a lot of interest from my data scientist colleagues data analytics in terms of well how do i make use of those events how do i start running analytical jobs off the back of them getting off the back of events and much closer to real-time analytics and then how do we get that information back into the channel application? So where we work something interesting out about a customer, some behavior or or recommendation we can make to them, how do we get that back to the customer? And so then you start thinking about notifications and, and Kafka obviously has a big part to play in, in that. So it's more choreography, more event-driven designs, um, more um, getting more of our data sources into Kafka and materialized. And then I think it's, and then what interesting analytics can we do and what interesting push notifications can we give to our customers to tell them interesting things instead of relying on our customers querying our systems, you know, logging in and checking their balance, how much can we push to the customers and tell them that they, that they want to hear about. My guest today has been Rob Jackson. Rob, thanks for being a part of Streaming Audio. Thank you very much. Hey, you know what you get for listening to the end? Some free Confluent Cloud. Use the promo code 60PDCAST 
that's 60PDCAST, to get an additional $60 of free Confluent Cloud usage. Be sure to activate it by December 31st, 2021, and use it within 90 days after activation. And any unused promo value on the expiration date will be forfeit, and there are a limited number of codes available, so don't miss out. Anyway, as always, I hope this podcast was helpful to you. If you want to discuss it or ask a question, you can always reach out to me at TLBerglund on Twitter. That's T-L-B-E-R-G-L-U-N-D. Or you can leave a comment on a YouTube video or reach out in our community Slack. There's a Slack sign-up link in the show notes if you'd like to join. And while you're at it, please subscribe to our YouTube channel and to this podcast wherever fine podcasts are sold. And if you subscribe through Apple Podcasts, be sure to leave us a review there. That helps other people discover us, which we think is a good thing. So thanks for your support, and we'll see you next time.